0: Galatians chapter five, as we continue our series here in the book of Galatians, living life in the liberty of Christ. And we've been talking about how, uh, I mean, throughout this letter, Paul, Paul's argument has been you don't need the law to make you righteous. You need the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, that it's faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes you righteous in this life and now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of how all that works and so again these uh, couple starting a couple weeks ago these three messages here could have been preached as one um, but really we're just taking them bit by bit and piece by piece and gleaning great truths from them and so we're going to go ahead and read again verse number 16 and we'll read down through verse 23 our text for tonight will be verses 22 and verse 23 so once you've found your place in Galatians chapter 5, if you'll stand in honor of God's word, we'll read our text together before getting into our message. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And so, You've been given the Holy Spirit to war and to combat your flesh to keep you from going after those fleshly tendencies. But what we find in this battle is the flesh, if you let it have control, it's going to keep you from doing the things the spirit wants you to do. And if the spirit is in control, it's going to keep you from doing the sinful things the flesh wants to do. And so there's this battle here. And ultimately, it's about how you respond to the spirit. If you look at verse 18, he says, but if ye be led of the spirit Ye are not under the law. When you have the leadership of the spirit, you don't need to be under the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, I don't know about you, but none of that sounds good. <laughs> and none of it sounds like it ought to be a part of a Christian's life. And that's exactly the point. But when the flesh is in charge, these things are at large in your life. And so we get to verse at the end of that. It says, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit The kingdom of God. In other words, if you're doing these things, you're living like somebody who doesn't have Jesus in the first place. Okay, that's what you're living like. But verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. Last week, we considered this aspect of it, the fallen look of a fleshly life, that when you live your life after the flesh, you're going to look like you're still fallen, like you're without Christ. This week, we're going to look at this idea, the sanctified look of a spirit-filled life. And so may God bless you in his word. You can be seated. We'll consider that tonight. When you talk to... Uh, secular people about some of the fundamental problems of life, society, what have you, things like violence, shootings, racism, discrimination, or drugs. When you talk to secular people, that would be just people who are non-religious or are skeptics or whatever it might be. But when you consider these things with them, they always view the solutions to these problems as being policy, regulation, regulation, Legislation. That's the idea that that what we really need here is we need bigger government involvement to come in and to solve these problems. The response is we need gun control. We need uh, we need police reform to stop racism. We need anti-discrimination laws to stop prejudices. We need more government programs and mental health facilities and halfway houses in order to stop drug drug problems. And so the idea of the secular worldview is that we solve evil through legislation and regulation. Now, whenever a conversation like this does come up um, with a secular person, I try my best to point them to the fallen condition of man. It's undeniable that within each and every one of us is a fallen nature that naturally wants to go away from God, wants to go into sin, wants to commit evil, And enjoys that. There's a natural part of us. And so, and I would say this, that many of the secular people that I have talked to agree with that. Because it's really an undeniable fact of life. That the reason why people commit evil is because in their hearts they truly are evil. And so, the only solution then for the world's problems is ultimately to deal with the fallen condition and legislation and regulation does not deal with the fallen condition. And so what that means is that there's only one person who can really deal with the fallen condition of man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God who came from heaven, and he went and he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And in doing so, those who place their faith in him are freed from their fallen condition. It doesn't mean that we no longer sin, but it means that you're no longer dominated by your fleshly fallen nature, that you now have been free to make a choice. Do I go God's way or do I go the way of evil? And so the only solution for the world's evils is really this, for every person on the face of the planet to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen. Now, Amen. when talking to a secular person, And you say that, here's the inevitable response. Christians have committed committed some of the most heinous crimes in history. And to that, you have to say, it's true. You're right. And so they would look at that and they would say, so how is Jesus really the solution? Because if you think about it, Christians still sin. There are still those who have who have committed heinous crimes under the name of Christianity. There are those who, uh, there have been religious wars. There have been. There have been those who uh, justified slavery with scripture verses. You can't deny that in history. Christians still cheat, lie, steal, even kill, unfortunately. There are still Christians who are racist, There are still Christians who are angry, abusive fathers and wives for that part. There are still Christian men who are unfaithful to their wives, men who are hooked on pornography, men who are enslaved and ladies who are enslaved to antidepressants and prescription drugs. And it just wreaks havoc on their mind and on their life. And it's something that's a pull. It's an addiction to them. There are pastors who take advantage of church members. Take teen girls across state lines. Unfortunately, that still happens. There are talking heads on news channels who tout their Christian faith to draw in their Christian audience. And yet what they do is they condone violence and rioting. And they say that we ought to rise up in a civil war in the name of Jesus. And so they use their platform and they attach their Christian name to it to try to incite things that are nowhere near the character of who Jesus Christ is, it still happens. So when there is so much sin still being perpetuated by Christian people, it makes it very tough to state the claim that Jesus is truly the solution. So what is the solution here? Is the problem with Jesus? Is the problem that the Bible doesn't really have? The solution to man's fallen condition, if even those who are its strictest strictest adherents are not living uh, moral lives, what is the solution here? Do we need a law and regulation to solve this problem? Well, I'm going to tell you tonight, the problem is not with the Bible's prescription. The problem is that Christians are not taking it. When you consider if you have a severe disease and you've got medication that's prescribed to you, if that prescription sits on the shelf and never gets into your body and courses through your veins and attacks those problems in your disease, then what good will the prescription do for you? The solution really is this that Christians who have been born again, who have had their sins forgiven, And have received the Holy Spirit, they need to walk in the Spirit and fully utilize what God has given them to combat the flesh and to live a moral life. See, the problem is that there are too many Christians living after the flesh, and thus they look fallen to a secular world. In Galatia, they were dealing with a similar problem that you've got people who are being saved, but then the temptation or maybe even some have gone all the way as to live as though they're not saved, that they've continued to struggle with sin and as though Jesus has made no difference in their lives. And so they're looking around and they're seeing Jesus as perhaps a slightly insufficient source of. righteousness. And so the Galatians are looking around and saying, what do we do to make sure that we're not only righteous before God, but that we are living righteously today, that we're not given over to the lusts of our flesh. And we're not going back into this pagan system of life that Jesus freed us from and saved us out of. What do we do? And the Judaizers came in and here's what they said, legislation, regulation will solve it for you. What you need is more laws. What you need is a governor in your life. What you need is, some, is a book of laws to come and tell you do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. That's really what you need. But here's the problem. The Pharisees kept the law, and yet they put Jesus to death along with a host of other Christians. In Galatia, you have law-keeping Jews who are persecuting Christians. And so as you really consider it, was legislation in their day and time the right solution either? Absolutely not. And that has been Paul's argument throughout this book. He's teaching them that because you still have a fallen nature, you cannot regulate your way out of your fallen condition. He's been teaching them that in Jesus, though, You've been given all the tools you need to live a righteous life before God and before men in this very life. That He's given you the tools to be righteous and to combat the works of the flesh. And those tools that Paul has been showing us that he's given them is first of all their salvation, that they have Christ living within them at the end of chapter 2. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ Christ liveth in me and he's saying if christ is really living in you then you're not going to go after the things of the flesh and so having jesus alone is enough to combat but on top of that he gave you the holy spirit the holy spirit to be a guide and now the holy spirit has come in your life and he you have reinforcements available that it's no longer that your flesh is just going to lead you wherever it wants to go, but now you have the Spirit that pulls back the reins on you and says, you ought not say that, you ought not do that, you ought not go there, you ought not be with those people, and it didn't need a law. It was a feeling inside that was coming from the Holy Spirit given by Jesus Christ at salvation. And so he's given you the Holy Spirit to do that. And so when Christians commit sin and evil... Or when they manifest the works of the flesh, it's because they are living after the flesh and thus they still look as though they are fallen. But when Christians choose to walk in the spirit, you know what they look like? Sanctified. What does that mean? Set apart unto God. It means that you're no longer set apart unto your flesh to do whatever it wants you to do. But when you're walking in the spirit, he has a way of purifying your life purging you and cleansing you from sin and helping you live holy and righteous in this life. Paul is calling us as believers to live after the Spirit. Why should we do that? What difference does living in the Spirit make in our lives? Last week, we saw this, that you should not live after the flesh or you'll end up living for what you've been liberated from. Uh, Jesus freed you from the lusts of the flesh that he describes in verse number 19 and 20. He freed you from that. But when you choose to live after your flesh, you go right back into the very things that he's liberated you from. That's what we saw last week. Now we're going to see the other side of this, that that how or why we should live after the spirit and not after the flesh. Walking in the spirit enables the spirit to produce fruit in your life. It says in verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, I want to point out some contrasts here between the fruit of the spirit. Let me make sure I've got these on the right side. The fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh. OK, first off, notice this difference. He calls the works of the flesh the works of the flesh but he calls this the fruit of the spirit why the change here why does he call this fruit instead of works well works are something that you do right here right now in the moment it's something that when left to yourself it's what you do with your hands with your eyes with your feet it's it's something that you do on a personal level the works of the flesh in other words. When you are letting the flesh work, the flesh works the works of the flesh, which he calls to attention to adultery and sexual sins, he calls it to religious sins of witchcraft and idolatry and he calls it to relational sins of of causing schisms and heresies and and covetousness and pursuing other people's jobs and trying to emulate them and crawling over people to get to where they are and and their possessions and all those things and so he's saying that these are the works of their flesh these are the works that your hands do fruit on the other hand is something that happens as the result of something else. When you consider fruit, you plant the seed in the ground and the tree starts coming up. And as that tree comes up, the leaves start sprouting and eventually gets to the point where it's bearing fruit. And so when he changes this, I mean, what, what's the reasoning here? I like what this man named Scott McKnight said. He said, The change of terms from fruit to uh, from from works to fruit evokes a different image, from one of human responsibility to one of divine enablement. That what we're talking about now is the fruit of the Spirit is not something that you can produce by yourself. This is something that is produced in you by somebody else. It's something that's going to bring forth fruit in your life. Well, who is bringing forth this fruit? It's the Spirit. He said, this is the fruit of the spirit. This is the spirit being planted in your life and working in your life. And when you choose to water the Holy Spirit in your life, as, a, as opposed to watering the flesh in your life, then the spirit sprouts forth and it brings forth these fruits in your life. And so he distinguishes the difference here between works and fruits. That works is something you do. Fruit is something the spirit does. Then there's another contrast here that you have the works plural of the flesh, but you have the fruit singular of the spirit. Okay. What's the difference here? Well, you've got a list of things here on both, but for some reason he calls the works of the spirit to be fruit singular. Here's what I believe that this is getting across is this, that the works of the flesh, if you are, if as you examine your life, If any one of these works of the flesh are manifest in your life, adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, wrath, seditions, all those things, if one of those things is evidenced in your life, then you know I am living after my flesh. But I would submit to you, he groups all of these together. Think about a fruit real quick. Let's just think about an apple. An apple has multiple parts to it. It's got the peel, it's got the flesh, it's got the stem, it's got the core, it's got the seeds. It might even have some leaves on it. And so you look at that, it's got all these functioning parts, but it's one singular fruit. We call it an apple, singular apple. And so the idea here of the fruit of the Spirit is this, that while on the the hand of the works of the flesh, if you have one of those in your life, then you know you're living after the flesh. With the Spirit... If you are lacking one part, you know you're not living after the Spirit. There's a difference there, see? So in other words, I mean, I know we're going to go through these different terms. If you have love, but you don't have joy, you're not living in the Spirit. If you have joy, but you don't have peace, you're not living after the Spirit. If you have love, joy, peace, but you're not long-suffering with people, then you're not living after the spirit. Do you get the difference here? Over here, if all you have in your life is an adulterous affair, you're living after the flesh. If all you have is hatred for one person in your life, you're living after the flesh. That's all it takes to say I'm living after the flesh. Over here, to say I'm living after the spirit, all of these things must be functioning in your life. And if there's a single moment when it's not, you can know this, I'm still living after the flesh and not after the spirit. And so that's the difference between the works, plural, and the fruit, singular. And so what he's saying is when you are walking in the Spirit, these are the fruits that are going to be in your life. The first one is love. This is the word agape, which would be a selfless, self-sacrificing love. It means you go out of your way to demonstrate love towards someone. You deny yourself in order to benefit or help others. The idea is that when a husband comes home from a long day of work, And he's worn out and he would love nothing, love to do nothing more than to kick back, recline on the couch, flip the TV on and veg the night away. But he sees his wife running around ragged with the kids and trying to clean up after dinner and trying to vacuum the floor and trying to wash the kids up and give them a bath. Uh, What agape is, what love is here is that husband says, you know what, put the recliner down, set the remote down, turn the TV off, go grab a vacuum and start helping out. That is love. It's self-sacrificing. While he may not have to do that, and while it may not be convenient or comfortable after being on his feet all day, he sacrifices himself in order to help his wife. This kind of love would be Cutting emissions check when prices are soaring <laughs> and when the gas prices are crazy and when you don't have as much money, you still cut the missions check so that those missionaries can go and they can be able to give the gospel to other people on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. It's self-sacrificing, self-denying, going without something for somebody else. It's being willing to drive a neighbor down to Parker to a doctor's visit when gas is over five bucks a gallon. See, the kind of love that is manifested from walking in the spirit, it selflessly demonstrates love to others. Uh, When you contrast it with the works of the flesh, it would stand uh, love over here. And on this side would be jealousy, envy, emulations, hatred selfishness, dissension. You would see those things standing opposite. And then the second one here is joy. That would be a gladness or happiness that is not subject to the changing circumstances or relationships in your life. It would be the opposite of anger, wrath, and hatred. You're still able to have joy when someone else gets the promotion instead of you. You're able to rejoice with them. You still have joy when you don't get the raise you're hoping for you still have joy when people hurt you or offend you. You know that you're walking in the spirit when you can have joy after filling up your gas tank. You know you're in the spirit at that point. When the circumstances of life would look like you ought to be angry, like you ought to be bitter, like you ought to be discontent, or depressed, When the circumstances of your life say that that you should be hurt in this situation, yet you still have joy. That is how you know you're walking in the spirit because the circumstances can't touch your joy. Why? Because the spirit is in control and not the flesh in your life. Now, what I'm not saying is that there won't be times when you're grieved. I'm not saying there won't be times when you're enduring physical pain and suffering. I mean, when you when you lose a loved one or when you're going through a physical health problem or or when you're going through a financial problem that, hey, those have the tendency to bear down on you and to be very grievous in your life. And so I'm not saying you're not going to have grief. But what I am saying is this, when you're walking in the spirit, those situations will not crush you. They will not drive you into depression. They will not drive you away from God in bitterness and resentment. Why? Because what doesn't matter to you is what's going on in your flesh right now. What matters is what's going on in your spirit. And you know this, I'm still saved. I still have Jesus. I still have a home in heaven. He's still giving me good health. He's still taking care of me. I'm not gonna let this take away my joy. That's how you know you're living after the spirit. Peace. Peace. Love, joy, and peace. This would be talking about harmonious relationships with others. That when you're walking in the Spirit, your relationships won't be in constant turmoil, frustration, and conflict. I mean, when you think about it, when a marriage is full of of fighting and arguing and conflict, it's because there are two people walking in the flesh right now. They both want what they want. And they want to be right and they want to prove that they are right. They want the other person to be wrong and they want them to come over and see it from their perspective. But what happens is when you're walking in the spirit, instead of trying to take your glasses and force them onto their face and say, see it my way, what the spirit of God's going to do is it's going to lead you to take your rose colored glasses off and put them down and pick theirs up and try to see the situation through their point of view to try to. Understand first before trying to be understood. And that'll resolve a lot of conflict in marriage relationships. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. In the Bible, you have another word, patience. And that's a word used to describe dealing with the problems of life. That you're enduring, you're not being bogged down by the problems of life long suffering has to do with the people who are the source of those problems (laughs) the word long suffering means to suffer long with somebody it means to allow to permit something to go on to not respond after the flesh and anger and hatred and to go off in wrath but rather to deal with them to put up with them the sources of your problems. It might be a brother who's a real annoyance to you. <laughs> it could be a, a coworker who's constantly doing things that just get under your skin. You know, uh, filing the papers the wrong way, or counting the cash wrong, or just stuff going wrong all the time, and it frustrates you. It may be a politician who seems to be making your life harder each and every day. Could be that. It may be the person who cuts you off in traffic and almost causes an accident. It might be the person who's a neighbor whose apartment smells like a landfill or smells like a skunk house and it's seeping into yours now and you don't like the smell. Or it could be like a, a landlord who raises your rent and neglects to fix the problem that's going on in your house right now. That could be that kind of person. It could be a spouse who lands their clothes everywhere around the laundry basket but never in the laundry basket, right? Yeah. It might be that your kids finger paint a masterpiece on the living room wall. It could be something like that. What I'm trying to say is wherever it may be coming from, I guarantee you that the vast majority of us in here tonight have somebody in our lives that's making life a little bit more difficult right now. And what tends to happen is if we are operating in the flesh, the flesh wants to go off with the full force of a volcanic eruption. But when you're walking in the Spirit, he says that you are going to be long-suffering. You're going to put up with the wrongdoings of others. You're not going to lash out. You're not going to write a nasty email to them. You're not going to leave a nasty note for them at work. That when you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to respond with kindness and grace, and you're going to say, you know what? This isn't worth it. I still have Jesus. I was kind of like that to God at one time. Boy, I'm sure thankful that God's long-suffering because if God responded the way that we normally respond, every one of us would be in trouble. But thank God he's long-suffering with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so when his image is restored in you through the working of the Holy Spirit, his long-suffering nature will also be manifest in your life. And then the next word here is gentleness. This would be kindness, benevolence. The idea is gently meeting needs or to be gently serviceable or helpful to somebody. It means that you aren't rude. (laughs) You're not closed off to people, that... When somebody comes to you with a need, you don't see them as a bother, but you do your very best in your capacity to try to meet that need. I mean, think about a waiter for a second. Now, there's there's a place in Chicago called Ed Debovick's and at Ed Debovics it's a unique throwback retro diner that is unique because it's centered upon harsh service and snarky and snide remarks. That what it is, is you go and you sit there and they, I mean, you watch the videos, it's actually hilarious. If you go there and you just order a shake, then the waiter or the waitress might say, Oh, wow, big spender today. They say things like that. Or they might, they might say, uh, if you get the double cheeseburger with a large fries and a large drink, they might say, I think you might need to take some of that off looking at you. Like they're, they're just, they're goofy that way. And so they'll come at you harsh. If you ask for a refill, they might say, man, you are so needy. Can't you just get it yourself? And it, it's not rude because you expect it. It's what you go there for is for the entertainment aspect. But that's not our expectation of a restaurant, is it? When we go to a restaurant, you know what our ideal situation is? I don't know about you, but it is for me. That what I would like to see is as I'm sitting there eating my food and I'm drinking my Coca-Cola that... When it's getting down to about a third of the way, it always puts a smile on my face when the waiter comes by and sets a full one right down next to it. You know That means that as they're walking by, and yeah, they're helping everybody else, and they're very busy, but they glance over at your table and they say, Oh, they're getting low. I see a need. I've got the solution. I'm going to go grab them another drink, and I'm going to put it right back. That's what the gentleness means that you see a need and you go right after it and you help people out. You're gentle with them in that way. And then he gives this goodness, goodness. This would have to do with moral qualities, moral excellence, that that this would be the polar opposite of manifesting the works of the flesh. This is somebody who's pure, somebody who's faithful to their wife, somebody who's a man of integrity, somebody who's a lady of integrity, somebody who's going to go out of their way to to do the right thing. Even if it makes them look bad, they're still going to do the right thing. And so we're talking about moral quality. It's when you're not living for drunkenness and parties and all of those things. It's when your life is really an accurate portrayal of who Jesus is. Goodness. And then he says faith. Faith would be trusting God rather than taking control. Trying to view all of these in the context here that he's drawing a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And so when you consider as he's talking about faith here, when we talked about the works of the flesh last week, we looked at some of what those words meant and included in them. You had the person who who wants what they have wants their position. And so they go and they try to take control of it and they try to badmouth that person in the eyes of the boss to try to make themselves look better. They might fudge the numbers to be able to hit their bonus number or try to make themselves better for a promotion. But on the on the other side of that, it's when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do things right. I'm going to be loving and gracious toward people. And I'm going to put the numbers right on the sheet. And I'm going to go into this interview and this opportunity for promotion. I'm just going to trust God. If he wants me to have this one, great. If he doesn't, then I'm going to rejoice with them. And I'm going to move on and I'll wait for the next opportunity. That's what faith is. It's when a single person says, you know, I'm not going to try to force myself into a bad relationship just for the sake of getting married or just for the sake of having a relationship. But I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust that he can lead me to the right person who's going to want to serve God with me and have a marriage that's built on biblical foundations rather than whatever the culture says marriage ought to be. And so they say, I'm going to have faith in God about this. It means that you don't overreact. Overreact that you can take a step back and take a reassessment of the situation and respond in grace while still addressing the issue that you're dealing with. That for a boss, rather than firing an employee that messes up yet again, they might correct them in a firm but in a kind and gentle manner rather than going off at them. This would describe meekness, meekness. Meekness is disciplined power, moderated authority. And so you think of a boss in that situation, that he's got the authority. He can do whatever he wants. He can fire that person on the spot because they've done it yet again. Or he can look at the situation and say, you know what? It's kind of troubled times right now, and people are coming on hard times. And and I know this guy, his wife has got some health problems going on. And so I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to reassess the situation. Instead of going off at him right away, I'm going to come to him and approach him with gentleness and kindness but firmness. Tell him this has to stop. This has to stop, but I'm going to give you another chance. That would be meekness. It means that although you're the parent and you have the authority, you don't have to use that authority to belittle your children, to be verbally abusive to them or to treat them as slaves. But to go back to a previous example, when they paint on the walls, you take a step back, you calm yourself down, you might send the kids away and let them calm down and give yourself time to calm down before coming back and addressing the situation But meekness means this, that you can temper it down, that you don't use the full force of your authority for abuse and frustration and lashing out and letting the flesh take control. But with the help of the spirit, you exercise meekness. And then he gives this word temperance. Temperance would be similar, self-disciplined, self-controlled, self-restraint. But again, drawing parallels here, you think of, drunkenness, you think of revelings, you think of adultery and fornication and lasciviousness and uncleanness and all those things that, that what you could look at this with self-restraint and self-control would be this, you keep your mind out of the gutter. It means that you don't let rust run wild. lust run wild in your life. It means that you can say no to sweets and excess food if it would go over into gluttony. <laughs> it means that you can discern whether to say something or to refrain from speaking when you have an opinion about a matter. You know, it's not always good to voice your opinion. Sometimes it is, but it's not always good. And the Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom and the temperance to know when to speak and when not to speak. When you look at all of these qualities, I would say this. Number one, they're severely lacking in our world as a whole. And number two, they're severely lacking even in Christian churches. But when you look at all these, these are some wonderful qualities that should be a part of every Christian's life. It's a pretty high standard, though. It's a pretty tough bar to reach. In fact, because these qualities are mentioned as one singular fruit, we talked about how if if you don't have one of these things in your life, you're not living in the Spirit. You can have all the temperance, you can have all the meekness that you want, and yet if you're not gentle and benevolent towards others, you're lacking the Spirit. If you can have peace in your relationships at home, but not have peace in your relationships with work, that's that's a thermometer telling you that something's sick, something's out of place. You're not walking in the Holy Spirit. And so the truth is that we fall short So how how do we reach that level of Christian righteous living? One thing's for sure. It's not something we're going to muster up on our own. It's not something that can come from the flesh, because what we've seen here is that when you live after the flesh, it's the works of the flesh that come into effect, not the fruit of the Spirit. And so what's the remedy here? Well, at the end of verse 23, he says, Against such... There is no law. What that means is when you've got the fruit of the Spirit reigning in your life, there's no law that can produce that in your life. There's no purpose for the law if you've got the fruit of the Spirit reigning. In other parts of this book, the Apostle Paul has referred to the works of the law as the works of the flesh. For by the works of the flesh shall no flesh be justified. And so he's talked about that in, in chapter three, I believe, as well. And he's talking about have you been have you been led by the Spirit and now you're you're finished by the works of the flesh? And so he's still drawing this parallel that when you're trying to obtain righteousness in this life by keeping a list of rules and regulations, when you're trying to regulate and legislate sin out of your life, what you're doing is you're operating by your own power. And when you try to operate by your own power, the only thing that's sure is that the works of the flesh are going to come out in your life. And so he says that the remedy here, the solution For the evil things in this world, the evil things in our lives is not by the works of the law, but rather it's through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. See, that's what Paul's argument is, is that when the spirit is producing this kind of righteous living, then there's no need for the law. The Judaizers, they said, you become more righteous by keeping the works of the law. But the reality is, is that you can abstain from eating bacon and still yet manifest the works of the flesh. You can still keep the Sabbath day and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks and the Passover. You can still do all those things and yet still be uh, in an adulterous situation. You can still be hateful, still be wrathful to your family. And so you cannot obtain righteousness by keeping the Old Testament law or by establishing a list of rules and regulations because that's operating by your flesh. But here's what happens when you are operating under the control of the Holy Spirit, then he does a sanctifying work in your life that the law is totally insufficient to accomplish. He can make love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness temperance he can make all those things a daily part of your life and when those that when that fruit of the spirit is manifesting itself in your life it's going to go to war with your flesh and the spirit will win out if you will walk in the flesh or in the spirit excuse me but i want to tell you that the fruit of the spirit developing in your life it's not something that happens overnight It's not something that happens the moment that you get saved. There's one more contrast here between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And that is this. The works of the flesh are things that take place immediately. The fruit of the spirit is something that develops over time. That it's not something that happens right away in the moment But it gradually grows. And so it means that you're not going to become some super spiritual giant just because you got saved or just because all of a sudden you understand how the Holy Spirit works. But what it means is that as you daily submit yourself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then he goes to work in your life. And a year from now, you'll look back at your life and you won't be able to believe how far he's brought you from. You'll look back and you'll look at something in your life today and you'll say, Boy, a year ago, if you'd have told me that I had this kind of calm and peace, I never would have believed it. I would normally go off at my landlord, and now I'm I'm kind to them. I I would I would normally go off at my kids, but now I've got a different approach. You'll look back at your life and say, I never thought I'd get over that addiction. I never thought I'd get over that sin. I never thought that I would get off of drugs. I never thought I'd quit drinking. I never thought I'd stop cussing. I just never thought that I'd ever be able to get beyond those things. But what has happened is in your life over the last year, when the Holy Spirit has spoken in your life, you've responded to him and you responded to him and you responded to him. And what happens is as you continually respond to the Holy Spirit, that cuts a groove in your mind. And you'll find that the old poles of the flesh aren't nearly as strong as they used to be, that you've been liberated and freed from them. And now you are walking in the spirit and the fruit of the spirit is manifesting itself in your life why because you made it a habit to walk in the spirit that's why Paul says this I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh remember we talked about that word it means to walk again and again and again use the illustration of my dog how we would let him out the backyard and he would run around that fence and it eventually Uh, flattened the ground and took all the grass out and carved a pathway for him around that fence line. And that's what it's like with the Holy Spirit is as you go out into life and you continually follow his leadership, like that fence, you let the fence keep you under control and keep your flesh from running wild, then a groove will be cut to where it's just naturally what you start to do is follow the Spirit. That is the sanctifying power. That he has in your life to make you righteous and there's nothing the old testament law there's nothing that wearing a suit and a tie and nothing that that uh, that trying to perform all these religious rituals and following all the traditions it's something that none of those things can do in your life the way the holy spirit can and so what we gather is this that you ought to live after the spirit because the spirit produces fruit that can't be produced by the flesh. So why then are there so many Christians who still live in sin? Is it because the solution isn't good enough? Is it because they need legislation and law in their lives? No, it, it very simply boils down to this. They are living their daily lives after the flesh and it's revealed in their actions and their responses to the greatest temptations in their life. When what we're supposed to do as a Christian is if we have Jesus as our savior and we are walking in the spirit, he's not going to lead us to incite violence. He's not going to lead us to condone slavery. He's not going to lead us to go and pull the trigger on a gun at work or at a school. He's not going to lead us to go and pump our bodies full of drugs. No, the Holy Spirit's not going to lead us to do that. And so to go back to the introduction here, the solution really is this. If every person on the face of the earth would trust Christ as their savior and would walk in the spirit, it truly would solve all the world's problems. And what I'm going to tell you is one day that's going to happen. Sin's going to be eradicated. There will be no more fallen nature. Jesus is going to rule and reign here for a thousand years and everybody's going to submit to his leadership, whether they're truly saved or not. And you're going to have a perfect, peaceful reign under the Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years. But then what's going to happen is Satan's going to be loosed for a season. And people are going to stop submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. And they're going to start living after their flesh. And they're going to rebel. And guess what's going to happen? A war is going to break out. Why? Because they stopped submitting to the authority of Christ and started living again after the flesh. Why? They didn't have the spirit in them. They weren't saved. They weren't truly saved. And so when you look at it, Jesus is the solution, but here's what we understand. In this lifetime, not everybody's going to be saved. And it means that we as Christians have a responsibility to take the gospel. If we really want to make a difference in people's lives and in our communities and in our country, it's not going to be through law. It's not going to be through legislation. It's not going to be through politicians and elections. It's not going to be through any of those things. If we really want to make a difference, what people need is the liberty of, that is found in Jesus Christ where they're no longer bound to their flesh but are freed from it and they have Jesus living in them and now they can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh and what do you know? Hatred's out of their life. Wrath is out of their life. Competition is out of their life and they're now just trying to follow Jesus and live like Him. And that's what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to make us like Jesus. The only way to fight the flesh is to be filled with the spirit. But the only way to be filled with the spirit is to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can do anything about our sin and our flesh. The sins of those who trust in him were born in his body on the cross of Calvary. And that means that your sin has been removed, allowing you to be restored unto God. And through his death, he's freed you from the dominating force of your flesh. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to war against your flesh and to sanctify you and to restore God's image in your life. But that is only true of those who have placed their faith in him. Without Christ and the spirit, you are subject to being dominated by your flesh which is why if he is not your savior, you struggle every day. But when the Holy Spirit moves in and he begins to change you little by little, purging your life of sin and making you righteous within, then he will do that work and you'll look back and you'll say, I'm not who I used to be. Things are different. I'm a little more like Jesus. I'm not where I ought to be. But I'm a little more like Jesus and this fruit starts popping up in your life and you live in the response to the situations of life far different than you did without Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, when you have that kind of power operating in your life, there's no need for some law of external commandments that will only serve to revert you back to operating by the power of the flesh. See, Jesus is sufficient to give you the sanctified look of the Spirit-filled life if you'll walk in the Spirit. Father, thank you for the power.